Hello, welcome to another episode of Freaking Out about Opening Day with Randy Freaking, the podcast about the history and celebrations of Cincinnati's most revered non-religious holiday. We will call this episode, Let the Hoopla Begin, because we will review opening day history from 1886 to 1895, years when the hoopla surrounding opening day really took hold. Between the first impromptu parade of Harry Wright's players in 1869 through 1885, no special attention was given to the first game of each season other than the appearance of small ads, headlines, and articles noting, quote, the first championship game, unquote, of the year. That changed in 1886, when what would become a lasting tradition first came on the scene. I call 1886 a concert and canaries. Baseball fans opening their newspapers on the morning of April 17, 1886, were greeted by an ad announcing something special in conjunction with the first championship game. A 90-minute pregame concert by one of the great orchestras of the era, as well as a day dedicated to female fans of baseball. Now, Cincinnati was known for its music community in the 1870s, but 1886 is considered the year that its music heritage took hold. And the well-known orchestra, known as the Reed Band, had played before Red Stockings games in the past, but never before on the first day of the season. The orchestra was very popular among both the socially elite and the blue-collar fans. Indeed, it became the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra in 1895. And on this particular opening day, the Reed Band played a full 90-minute concert before the game and filled the grandstand. Can you imagine that happening today? I don't think so. People rarely show up for pregame announcements, celebrations, and the like today. There's rarely more than five or 10,000 people in the stands before pregame ceremonies today. In any event, there was also another effort to delight the fans, which came in the form of greeting patrons as they passed through the turnstiles. The greeting did not come from friendly attendants. Instead, fans were treated to the melodious sounds of canaries in cages. Undoubtedly, this has to be one of the most unique welcomes in the history of sport. I looked and looked in researching my book, Opening Day History in Cincinnati, and it is not clear why canaries were chosen but the presence of warbling birds was certainly a welcome change from previous years when fans simply filed past harried ticket collectors. The addition of the orchestra and the welcome given to ladies 
had the desired effect. As 5,460 fans attended the game, the Reds' largest home crowd ever. The next day's account of the opener focused not on the loss by the home team, but rather on the pregame festivities, the presence of the lady, and the umpire. Here's what the Enquirer said. The concert by the Cincinnati Orchestra Reed Band previous to the game was thoroughly enjoyed, especially by the ladies. The crowd was one of the most orderly that ever assembled at a ball game. The grandstand contained about 200 ladies, and not an objectionable feature was present. The pavilion was densely packed with a well-behaved crowd, which is saying a good deal. The brilliant play on both sides was loudly applauded, and not the least bit of favoritism was shown by the spectators. The umpire was way off in his decisions, and while they did not materially change the score, they were invariably against the Cincinnati's. If he wishes to succeed as an umpire, he will have to change considerably from the way he began this season. Unquote. The success of the opener resulted in increased attention to the special nature of the day, and the seeds of traditions to come were firmly planted. Let's move to 1887, which I simply call Mayor in the House. The morning paper of April 16, 1887, screamed, Are you ready? Then let the pennant fight begin. But the pregame festivities from a year earlier were missing from this inaugural game. The absence of the pregame music, coupled with extremely cold weather, resulted in an attendance of only 2,700 people. Half the crowd that had been wooed by the concert in 1886. Ladies were again encouraged to attend, but a sign of the post-Civil War times appeared in the Enquirer. Quote, Lady patrons will be looked after by a colored female attendant. Unquote. One noteworthy addition in the local press was the announcement that the city's mayor, Amor Smith, would probably occupy one of the private boxes at the opening contest. In subsequent years, a regular feature of the opener would be the appearance of dignitaries. First, the city's mayor, and later the highest officials in baseball, governors, and indeed presidents of the United States. Despite the freezing temperatures, the game was one of the finest openers played by the team from Porkopolis, as Cincinnati was sometimes called. It was called that because Cincinnati was the largest pork-producing city in the world. Sports writers appropriately dubbed the Reds the Porkopolitans in light of the city's nickname. Again, here's what the Enquirer had to say. The Cincinnati's played ball just as if it was a nice, warm summer day. They batted the ball fiercely, 
ran the bases daringly, and fielded almost perfectly. The Clevelands were defeated, and by a one-sided score at that, but their defeat is no discredit to them. The game played by the Reds yesterday was a magnificent one, and it would have beaten any club in the country. Now let's move to 1888, which is an interesting season for historical purposes. We call this portion starting the season on the road. One of the myths surrounding opening day in Cincinnati is that the Reds have always had the privilege of playing the first game of each episode at home. We discussed this in an earlier episode of Freaking Out About Opening Day with our guest, Howard Wilkinson. Many believe that this is an unwritten rule to commemorate the 1869 Red Stockings having been the first professional team. While the Reds have, in fact, been scheduled to begin at home every year but one since 1869, the rationale is betrayed by the 1888 schedule and the lack of any reaction to it. In that year, the American Association, horror of horrors, scheduled the Reds to open the season in Kansas City, followed by a trip to St. Louis. The Reds were not even scheduled to play a game in Cincinnati for the first 13 days of the season. The lack of any protest by the Reds, their fans, or the press suggests that a home opener being scheduled in Cincinnati was not presumed as a guarantee. And so, after opening the regular season in Kansas City on April 18, the Reds returned for their home opener on May 1. As in 1887, there was no pregame concert. Instead, the club instituted something called the Centennial Register. The Morning Enquirer announced, quote, All the patrons of the game and supporters of the club will be asked to register their names on books as they come in the gates, unquote. With no pregame festivities scheduled, the Reds decided to create a sensation by outfitting each player in a different colored uniform. The nine starting players wore the following combinations. Blue with black stripes. Blue with a white collar and cuffs. Red with white stripes. Black with gold stripes. Red with black stripes. Maroon with a white collar and cuffs. Black with blue stripes. Blue with white stripes. Black with white stripes. Black with red stripes and orange with blue stripes. Just a crazy color combination of uniforms. All of the pitchers had white uniforms with a red collar and cuffs. This experiment was short-lived, and unfortunately, no photographs of the party-colored uniforms exist today. Another clothing-related novelty that day was dreamed up by a local clothier, Feckheimer Brothers and Company. 
Feckheimer promised a new suit to the Red, who hit the first home run of the season in Cincinnati. With cold weather and no pregame festivities being a factor once again, a crowd of only 2,200 was drawn to the opener. Catcher Kip Baldwin won the suit by hitting the first home run, and the Reds vanquished their rivals in a glorious game described by the Enquirer, resulting in a Waterloo for Louisville. Again, here's what the Enquirer reporter had to say. Last night, there was not a man, woman, or child in Louisville who was willing to admit that they ever knew there was such an organization as the Eclipse Baseball Club of Louisville. The Reds fell on the Blue Ribbon team at the Cincinnati Park yesterday and literally mopped up the grounds with the pride of Kentucky. The weather was anything but auspicious for ball playing. The air was cold and damp, and not once during the day did Old Soul, a reference to the sun, favor Cincinnati people with one peep of his countenance. It was more like a cold February day than the 1st of May, and any of the patrons who forgot their heavy wraps had a very hard time keeping warm. In spite of this fact, a surprisingly large crowd attended the game. They yelled themselves hoarse as the Louisvilles were being slaughtered, unquote. Maybe because the club thought the opener itself was enough of a draw, the Reds instead promoted the second game of the home season as the formal opening by hanging banners and inviting the orchestra back. The Enquirer noted, quote, The Cincinnati Orchestra will give an open-air concert. They will render an excellent program, and one of the features will be the cornet solos of Professor Herman Belstedt. The public would do well to come early to hear the music, unquote. This promotion of music worked as the Reds attracted 2,600 fans for that second game, more than for the opener, and far more than for the second home games in prior seasons. Now, we move to 1889. I call this year the grand preparation for the opening. On the morning of April 17, 1889, the Enquirer heralded the grand preparation for the opening, noting, quote, Never in baseball history of Cincinnati has the opening of the season been observed as it will be at the Cincinnati Park this afternoon with banners flying, music playing, with the loud huzzas of brave men and the encouraging words of fair women, the championship season of 1889 will be started in a way that will long be remembered by those who are there, unquote. The article went on to say that, quote, the decorators were at work at the Cincinnati Park into a late hour last night draping the boxes and stands with banners, bunting, and flags of all nations, unquote. 
The full Cincinnati Orchestra was invited for a 90-minute concert of choice music before the game, and the club announced that any lady accompanied by an escort would be admitted free of charge that afternoon. The Reds were to appear in their skin-tight uniforms for the first time, and they were said to be, quote, undoubtedly the finest uniforms ever worn by an association team, unquote. As in 1886, making the first home game a special occasion was a resounding success, as 10,410 patrons attended. Now the largest crowd and the most festive day in Reds history. The Enquirer described it as follows. Cincinnati was baseball crazy yesterday. It seemed as if everybody was headed in the direction of Western Avenue and Finley Street. All the streetcars were packed in suffocation. Carload after carload of humanity was dumped in from the gates. (laughs) The stands, which had been beautifully decorated with flags, banners, and bunting, formed a splendid background for the gay spring bonnets and rich attires of the 1,000 ladies in the grandstand. Venturesome boys climbed to the roof of the pavilions while a row of skirmishers held on to the fence by their fingernails. The telegraph poles on the outside, the roofs of the adjoining buildings, and the tops of the boxcars on the side tracks west of the park furnished accommodations to bushwhackers who had not made the acquaintance of the gentleman in the box office. Unquote. The Reds announced after the 1889 season that they were rejoining the National League and they would remain in the National League for the rest of their history. A new rival league called the Players League was formed and many top professional stars joined the new league, though none from the Reds. No Players League team was placed in Cincinnati as direct competition, and this league survived only one season. Now we move to 1890, and we call this one Players on Parade. A fan-friendly innovation occurred on April 19, 1890, to mark the Reds' return to the National League. Both the Reds and their opponent for the day, the Chicago Colts, paraded in uniform through the streets of downtown Cincinnati in horse-drawn carriages. When they arrived at the ballpark, they left their carriages and marched upon the field with, quote, military-like precision, unquote. Their entrance followed a pregame concert by the Cincinnati Orchestra, and the park had been decorated the night before with banners and flags. 1890 was the most elaborate celebration of the Reds' opener in history to date, and despite poor weather, the crowd of 6,000 was exuberant. Again, here's the description in the Enquirer. 
as the big drum major of the 1st Regiment Band strode through the carriage gate, his baton aloft, 6,000 pairs of eyes were on him. The crowd on the circus seats were the first to greet him with a feeble yell. Then the bleachers took up the refrain and gave more force to their welcome. Next, the pavilion took a chance at the lung testing business. The enthusiasm was infectious. The sedate and dignified grandstanders fell in line, while the private box patrons added their little mite in the way of noise-making. It was an ovation and reached a climax with a great roar of applause. It followed when the players of each team lifted their hats in acknowledgement of the compliment. Unquote. Special celebrations also went on in other National League ballparks during the first week of the 1890 season. The league was well aware of the public relations challenge presented by the new Players League and the eight-year-old association. League administrators knew they had to draw fans however they could. The Enquirer declared, quote, the grand start to be made today, unquote, and included a joke from the pages of the New York Weekly that revealed the public's admiration for the players. The joke went as follows. First college boy, what are you going in for, wealth or fame? Second college boy, both. I'm going to be a ball player. Ha ha. Oh well. Hey, the papers also noted that the grounds were in excellent condition, adding that netting had been added behind home plate to protect fans from foul tips. The fans' hopes for a winning outing were dashed when the Colts beat the Reds 5-4, and the Enquirer reported that, quote, stupid base running and loose fielding allowed the Chicagos to carry off the prize, unquote. Apparently, the sports writers were holding on to memories of a lackluster season in 1889 as they put their own sardonic spin on the loss. Quote, Brass bands, banners, flags, a multitude of people. Old, hollow-eyed defeat. In fact, all the usual accompaniments of the opening of a baseball season in this city were at the Cincinnati Park yesterday. Old, hollow-eyed did not take up much space, but his influence was far-reaching and fell like a pall on the enthusiasm of the assembled spectators who had come fully expecting to see the Chicago Colts get a good dusting. Apparently, they weren't very happy. Anyway, let's move to 1891, and we call this year Competing Parades. An interesting personality came on scene in 1890. John Brush of Indianapolis bought the Reds after the 1890 season when the National League dropped Indianapolis from its ranks. Brush was a successful retail magnate whose years as owner were controversial in Cincinnati. During his tenure, he tried to pass the Brush Rule that could banish a player for life if he addressed an umpire or a fellow player in a villainously filthy manner. 
this proposal failed. Later, in 1903, Brush purchased the New York Giants while he also owned the Reds. And he also owned the American League's Baltimore Orioles. Brush made controversial personnel transactions that preceded the sale of his Cincinnati and Baltimore interest and positioned New York to be a juggernaut for the first third of the 20th century. When the Giants ran away with the National League pennant in 1904, Brush became responsible for the cancellation of the World Series. Brush canceled the World Series because he viewed the American League as a minor league. Now, going back to 1891, his first season owning the Reds, Brush duplicated the parade of 1890 by having the players of both teams, the Reds and the Cleveland Spiders, parade for 90 minutes through downtown prior to the April 22 opener. They were led by Weber's Prize Band of America, a military-style band. In addition to leading the parade, the band also played a 90-minute concert at the ballpark before the game began at 3 o'clock. On April 26, a new association team called Kelly's Killers held a similar parade. For the first time, Cincinnatians were treated to two parades to kick off the baseball season just four days apart. The appearance by Weber's band at the Reds parade was indeed special. Weber's band was the main reason Cincinnati was recognized as the musical center of the United States at the time. The band's leader, John Weber, hailed from Cincinnati, and most of his players were recruited from the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra. Music lovers thoroughly enjoyed the rousing music played by the band. The morning paper announced that the new season would be inaugurated in the appropriate manner and declared that both teams were ready to begin. Again, here's what the Enquirer had to say. Both teams are in excellent shape. Both have passed through a hard course of preliminary practice and will face each other this afternoon like two well-conditioned racehorses prepared especially for some rich prize. The Reds did their training at the best quarters known in America, Hot Springs, Arkansas, and are free from aches or ills of any kind. Indeed, the Reds had conducted their first out-of-town spring training trip in club history for the previous three weeks. Unquote. The festivities proceeded despite the most miserable weather for an opening championship game that the Reds had encountered in more than 10 years. Quote, bucketfuls, unquote, of rain delayed the start for 39 minutes. The Enquirer reported that field superintendent, quote, and his corps of juvenile assistants, unquote, worked with brooms to sweep off the puddles before dumping, quote, sundry and copious wheelbarrow loads of sawdust around the pitcher's box, third base, and home plate, unquote. Even the captain of the team, third baseman Arlie Latham, rolled up his sleeves and lent a hand. 
The game was started, quote, with a player standing ankle deep in mud and water, unquote. The new owner, Brush, had installed the first press box by placing a table at the end of the pavilion, anticipating increased press coverage of the Reds. Unfortunately, the weather forecast and the new rival association team reduced the crowd to only 4,503, the lowest attendance for an opener since 1888. The Reds lost their third straight opener, 6-3. One reason Kelly's killers were able to attract fans related to the bold and entertaining personality of its star, Mike King Kelly. Kelly's killers played at a site in the East End, near today's Smithfield softball complex, that was far removed from downtown and lacked public transportation. The team folded after one season, but a plaque in the National Baseball Hall of Fame, describes Kelly as a, quote, colorful player and audacious base runner, unquote. Next, we move to 1892. We call this year New Year's Day, but no parade. The Enquirer announced that it was New Year's Day on, of all things, April 12th. 1892. Quote, well, another season is on us. 1892 opens this afternoon. Unquote. The paper then decided to give a history lesson in hopes that the Reds would regain their championship form. It read as follows. The opening game today takes one back just a decade. Ten years ago, the Reds opened the first championship season of the American Association and had the Pittsburghs for their opponents. On that memorable occasion, the Pittsburghers larropped the Reds, but the Reds got their revenge that season. They came along and won the pennant of the Association. It was the only one Cincinnati has had since the wonderful record of the Cincinnati Red Stockings of 1869 when Harry Wright and his men won every game they played. How will the local team fare this afternoon? It is an even money bet, and take your pick. Both will have great teams, unquote. For reasons unexplained, the Reds abandoned the pregame parade through the city, but they retained the tradition of a 90-minute concert by inviting Belstedt and Ballenberg's, quote, Grand Orchestra, unquote. The club anticipated a large crowd installing new turnstiles, quote, so there'll be no jam or a push in getting out, unquote. And they added a refreshment stand in deep right field. Brush also decided that women would be admitted free of charge to the unreserved seats throughout the entire season but 50 cents will give them the best seats in the park, he said. Although there was no parade and the weather was cold, the opener drew the largest crowd, 7,468, since the team rejoined the National League. But the fans were once again disappointed. 
And here again is the Enquirer's description. It was a characteristic Cincinnati baseball opening. There was the same great crowd, the same concert by a grand orchestra, the same bright summer sky with a December temperature, and least, but by far the most undesirable, the same old hollow-eyed defeat. Opening games are not the Reds' long suit. Experience has shown it. It takes a time-tried enthusiast with a memory like a college professor to go back to the period when the Reds won their opening game, unquote. The best news for fans at opening day in 1892 was the hiring of Frank Bancroft as the Reds' business manager. Bancroft would later be recognized as the father of opening day. Let's move to 1893. We're going to call this portion Dignitaries and Front Page Status. For the first 26 days of April 1893, there was not a single day in which it did not snow or rain in Cincinnati. Nonetheless, on the morning of April 27, the Enquirer declared that it was a safe bet that the first game of the season would go on. The paper noted that Frank Bancroft had Superintendent Dite Orler and the Can brothers, they were named Lewis and Snooks, quote, cleaning out the drainage outlets at the park and sanding the base pass, unquote. Not only did Bancraft order that the field be in proper condition, he also began to put his stamp on the importance of the opener by inviting several dignitaries and a celebrity. The invitation list included Ohio Governor William McKinley, who would be elected the 25th President of the United States in 1896, just three years later. He also invited the governor's entire staff, Cincinnati Mayor John Mosby, the city's police chief, many other city officials, and Jeffrey Lewis, a well-known actress. The guests were invited to witness a, quote, splendid opening, unquote, to the season that again included the renowned Weber Band for a 90-minute music program. And just before game time, the Reds, quote, tread across the field in jackets of dazzling red, redder than the reddest garment ever seen on the local ground, period, unquote. The morning paper had announced, quote, here is where friendship ceases. From now on, everything will count. And for the next five months, it will be everybody for himself and the devil take the hindmost, unquote. The Reds apparently agreed, beating the Chicago Colts 10-1, quote, in a whipping that they will remember for many a long day. The next morning, the city was greeted by a first. The Enquirer reported on the opener and the festivities with a front-page headline. Never before had either the Reds or the Red Stockings, or any sport for that matter, 
been featured on the front page of the paper. In the past, baseball stories were generally relegated to a portion of a page in the 8 to 16 page newspaper that covered boxing and horse racing as well. But for a welcome change in the far right column on page one, the Enquirer gushed, quote, Cincinnati hasn't had an opening like it in years. Nothing was missing to make the happiness of local baseball lovers complete. Their cup was brimful and running over the sides, unquote. Sort of a funny uh, side note here. Some fans during the 1893 opener attempted to gain a free view of the game by sitting atop boxcars in the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad yards adjacent to the ballpark. Unfortunately, quote, an engine backed up, hooked on, and away went the freight cars and spectators up the Mill Creek Valley. The thousands in the stands who put up their good money laughed loud and long, according to the Enquirer. Aside from the disapproval directed at those freeloaders, the only complaint about this opener concerned, of all things, the scorecard. The scorecard has been a tradition in baseball unlike in any other sport. It allows those in attendance to record each player's performance in the game. For example, if a batter hits a ground ball to the shortstop and the shortstop throws the ball to first base and made an out, a fan writes 6-3 to three in the designated area on the scorecard. Six is the number assigned to all shortstops as a position reference, and three is the number assigned to all first basemen as a position reference. Later in the game, the fan is able to review the player's previous at-bat and see that the player granted out to the shortstop. In the early years of professional baseball, scorecards were simply part of the experience of attending a game. Ever the promoter, Bancraft capitalized on fans' interest by introducing and marketing a pictorial scorecard in 1893. Now, Unfortunately, what happened here was the baseball tradition at the time called for both teams to announce each of the nine players' field positions from pitcher the right field, as well as the batting order the day before the game. This allowed time for the scoreboard publishers to print the players' names and positions on the scorecard. Patrons of the game could then purchase a scorecard on the day of the game that showed where each player was playing and when he would bat. Unfortunately, the visitors on this particular day changed the lineup on the day of the game, and that caused quite a number of erasers to be used, and it created quite a controversy. The Reds tried to push through a rule that said you couldn't change your lineup on the day of the game, but that never succeeded. So, out the window went the idea of listing the players in the actual program that we're going to start the game. Now, over the years, fewer and fewer fans continue to use a scorecard, and today is a rare sight to see someone with a scorecard at the ballpark, even though the cards are still sold largely as a matter of custom. Now, let's move to 1894. This is a very special year 
and very historic. We call this the first pitch arrives. The ceremonial first pitch is a long-standing ritual of baseball. The tradition involves having a guest of honor throw a ball to mark the end of pregame festivities and the start of the game. No one knows who started the ritual, but there are newspaper accounts about it dating back to 1890. In the years after 1890, the guest threw the ball from his or her place in the grandstand to the umpire, or in some cases to the pitcher. Today, the first pitch is usually delivered from the pitcher's mound to the catcher behind home plate. Cincinnati was scheduled to begin its first pitch tradition on April 19, no doubt as Bancroft's brainchild. Bancroft had planned a spectacular dedication and opening of the Reds' new ballpark at Finley and Western Avenues. Owner John Brush built a $12,000 grandstand topped by three turrets adorned with flags. Brush also changed the location of the diamond to take the sun out of the batter's eyes. The field superintendent had sowed grass seed that had come from the World's Fair. All the dignitaries who had attended in 1893 were invited to return, and Ballenberg and Belstead's full band was scheduled to play. The parade route was published in the newspaper, so fans could choose their favorite viewing spot, And once again, the Reds and Chicago Colts players would ride in open carriages from the Gibson House throughout downtown. To the delight of fans, the Reds were scheduled to appear in their new white uniforms for the first time. Anticipating a sizable crowd, the Enquirer reported that, quote, one great innovation this season will be the sale of single seats in boxes, unquote, that had historically been sold only to groups of wealthy fans. After the Reds and Colts had ridden to the Gibson house in their carriages, quote, the rain again began to come down at a lively rate, unquote, and the game was postponed until the next afternoon. Here's how the Enquirer described it. When the game was called, the Reds were driven back to the park and took off their new uniforms, which they will again don this afternoon. That the city has a very severe attack of baseball fever was attested not only by the crowds of people in front of the Gibson House and all along the advertised line of march, but by the great number of people who journeyed through the rain to the Cincinnati Park only to be turned back again by the sign, no game. The city was full of excursionists yesterday, and the greater part of them stayed for the opening this afternoon, unquote. While 10,000 people were expected to attend the opener on April 19, only 6,285 attended the opener in League Park the next day. The Enquirer opined that, quote, the postponement took the edge off the opening in a measure, and the rain and mud kept thousands at home, unquote. 
The parade was canceled, as were the dedication ceremonies for the new park. However, Governor McKinley made a few marks after the band's open-air concert, and he then tossed a brand-new baseball to the umpire, who shouted, Play ball! to begin the first game in League Park. This first-pitch ritual would be continued in subsequent years by the Reds and by many other professional baseball teams. While the crowd could not foretell the historical significance of McKinley's pitch, the fans went home happy after left fielder Bug Holiday hit the first Cincinnati Grand Slam in an opener. With Holiday's help, the Reds beat the Colts 10-6. Now McKinley became president in 1896, and so in fact, he is one of only two presidents to ever throw out a first pitch at a Reds opener. However, George Bush became the first sitting president to do it at Great American Ballpark. Now, the new ballpark that day was applauded for having the very best accommodations, including, quote, roomy seats, unquote. But it was criticized because the new grandstand reduced the distances to the outfield wall so much that it was easier to make a home run. The players of both teams were complimented for looking, quote, as clean and fresh as a nickel just out of the mint, unquote. But Reds captain Charles Comiskey, of the famous Comiskey family in baseball circles, quote, looked like a part of the present financial depression had located somewhere in his neighborhood. He wore a sweater that was faded and tattered and torn as badly as the colors of the forlorn hope. Commie should send his sweater to the old clothes man. It is overdue, unquote. Comiskey left the team after the season and helped to form a new minor league, which would become the American League in 1901. He is best known for owning the Chicago White Sox during the team's Black Sox scandal and for presiding over the construction of Comiskey Park in Chicago. Let's move to 1895, our final year of this episode. I call this year the Trolleys on Parade. Bancroft made other splashes before the opener in 1895 by having the Reds make a trolley car circuit of the city instead of riding in carriages. In a series of articles about the start of the season, the Enquirer introduced the phrase, quote, opening day, unquote, though the term did not catch on until years later. One article compared the start of the baseball season to major celebrations in Europe, and I really like this quote. Quote, What the English Derby is to the land of roast and beef and plum pudding, what the Prix de Paris is to Parisians, opening day in baseball is to about seven-tenths of the citizens of this great and glorious country. The opening of the championship baseball season is a matter second only in importance to the nation's great holiday, the anniversary of our independence. The citizens of adjacent territory for miles around are wrapped up in the success of the team in their nearest big city. 
Cincinnati is particularly favored in this way. The grand old Queen City is the metropolis of the state, and most of the citizens of Ohio look upon its club as their club. Unquote. A drawing that accompanied the article depicted the parade that would take place that afternoon on the trolley, with Bancroft leading the procession. The parade, perhaps because of its new twist, was an unqualified success, judging from the streets being full of fans shouting greetings from front doors and windows. When the team and the club's officers arrived at the Gibson Hotel for the annual luncheon, quote, the general verdict was that Cincinnati was all right. The crush of the crowd had been such that one man was killed at the Plum Street Bridge and another had a leg broken en route to the ballpark. After the parade, the fans were treated to the now customary pregame concert and the introduction of the Reds' new player captain, Buck Ewing. Ewing would go on to become one of the greatest players of the 19th century. In pregame ceremonies, Ewing was presented with a floral bouquet of roses in a horseshoe design. This gift to the popular player was a tribute from the tobacco merchants of the city. Ewing was popular in Cincinnati because he grew up here, but he played most of his career with the New York Giants. He was considered the Johnny Bench of his era. Bancroft understood that coming to Cincinnati would be a homecoming for Ewing. Although the bulk of his career was as a catcher, Ewing played first base while managing the Reds in that season opener. Ewing would end up being the team's captain for the next four years, and in 1939, he became the first catcher inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. In addition to hiring Ewing and inviting the customary political dignitaries, Bancroft also invited a, quote, notable and historical baseball group, unquote, at the suggestion of Mayor John Caldwell. A.B. Champion, the president of the Red Stockings from 1869, was joined by three other officials from the, quote, famous old team, unquote, along with the first baseman from the undefeated team, Charlie Gold. The Enquirer predicted that, quote, many an enthusiast will cast his eye in the direction of this famous group during the progress of the game, unquote. Caldwell did the first pitch honors, handing the ball to the umpire instead of throwing it as Governor McKinley had done the year before. Bancroft had indeed delivered the most elaborate opener to date and was rewarded with an attendance of 13,297, the largest in team's history to that date. Here's how the Enquirer described the scene in 1895. Quote, it was like a coliseum loaded to the guards. And it is an even bet that the Olympic Games never drew a more enthusiastic crowd. It was not only an enthusiastic, but a representative gathering. The best of the city's manhood, 
and the fairest of her fair sex were in attendance. A glance at the pavilion reminded one of the first-class theater assemblage. It was a dressy affair as well, drawing into its folds the beauty and richness left over by a splendid Easter. Appropriately, Buck Ewing led the Reds to a 10-9 victory, and hats, umbrellas, and cushions were hurled into the air. Now the victory cost the new captain, Ewing, quote, several dollars, unquote, because he had promised new hats to each player if they won the game. Wow. Great story. Really a great history uh, for 10 years there between 1886 and 1895. Now, we discussed Frank Bancroft and his role as the father of opening day with John Arardi in a previous episode. And John came up with a list meant to symbolize Frank Bancroft's 10 tips for opening day in John in John's book, simply called Opening Day, that he co-authored with Greg Rhodes. So here I just want to give you the list as constructed by John Arardi which he created, obviously, this does not come from Bancroft himself, but these were 10 ideas that John thought that Bancroft probably had in his head. Number one, try to have at least one really good local player on your team every year. Uh, We just talked about Buck Ewing in 1895. Two, pump in some new blood. Three, introduce new spangles every year. You know, the new scorecard he did. Uh, He didn't introduce the concert, but he certainly uh, continued it. The trolley car parade uh, through downtown. Things like that. Number four, give the fans and the news fellows something new to ponder on the grounds every year. He always tried to do something with with the ballparks and spruce him up in some fashion. Uh, Later in his career, he would actually have the pitcher's mound in the form of a shamrock. Uh, Five, invite some dignitaries and some special guests and notify the crowd of the latter. Well, as we talked about, he invited the governor, the mayor, city officials, etc. And it really did uh, increase the attendance, most likely. Six, Suffer the children, they are their future. Well, it's it's told, uh, John told the story in the earlier podcast about how Bancroft used to hang out down by the gate that allowed people into the ballpark. And after the game uh, started, Bancroft would kind of be monitoring the gate, but he'd see all the kids lined up and he would just kind of slowly walk away and let the kids sneak in. He really believed that the children were the future of the game. Seven, design a special program for the opening game as a keepsake. Well, we talked about the pictorial scorecards. Uh, He later did other things that we'll talk about in future episodes. Eight, schedule some Cracker Jack exhibitions right there in the home park for the days leading up to the opening day. And he certainly did that. 
nine, schedule a big parade and pull in the players. Well, he certainly continued that tradition. And 10, always remember, opening day is, quote, the people's day, unquote. And I thank uh, John Arardi for that list. He really thinks that Bob Housem in the 1970s had sort of a, a similar philosophy about opening day. And we know the great opening day tradition was carried on later uh, by Marge Schott, who really grew the parade into what it is today. But, uh, well, so there you have it. You now know how the hoopla began in 1886 and grew in the years thereafter through 1895. I hope you enjoyed our history lesson about these years when opening day in Cincinnati really took hold and became an official holiday. In coming episodes, we will explore later periods of opening day history as the city turned opening day into a celebration that has grown exponentially to the current scene that sees citywide celebrations for our one-of-a-kind holiday. I hope you will tune in again as we approach opening day. This is Randy Freaking signing off. And in the immortal words of Marty Brenneman, so long, everybody. <laughs>